I'm going to give a little context first of all. It's been a while since we've been in Mark. <clears throat> Back in chapter 11 of Mark, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. So knowing that, realizing that, we are getting towards the very end of Jesus' first earthly ministry. It's coming to an end. When we get into chapter 13, we're just a matter of a couple days from him being arrested. So that's where we are in the time frame of Jesus' ministry. And you remember when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the people were going crazy, cheering for him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just going wild. And, of course, right away, the, the religious people hated it. The religious people wanted him to shut up. Jesus said, hey, if you try to quiet them, even the rocks are going to shout out. You're not going to stop what's going to happen. And Jesus then, we don't get a lot of specific details on his trips into Jerusalem. He was staying outside of Jerusalem in a little village called Bethany. And he would go back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem. So when he rode in on the donkey, we do know that he went to the temple. But it was like a scouting trip. He went to the temple and he just kind of looked around, walked around. And then it was time to eat. In the evening, it was time to go back, walk back to Bethany. And his disciples returned to Bethany with him. And then the next morning, he gets up and they're going to go back to Jerusalem. And we have an interesting story in here that if we we don't connect some dots, we almost miss the significance. It's about the fig tree. We're told that Jesus got hungry. He was hungry. He was human as he was God. He was hungry. He sees this fig tree over there with its leaves. And when a fig tree had leaves, you could assume there should be fruit. And Jesus went over there to eat some of the fruit to satisfy his hunger. But when he got there, there was no fruit. Fig tree had no fruit. And he actually curses the fig tree. And to connect a couple dots, we need to think of this fig tree in the context of where we're at in the story. Jesus is going to be addressing the temple, the Jewish life, the temple sacrifice, all of that stuff. And we see a picture of the temple and the Jewish religious sacrificial system in this fig tree. So the fig tree has no fruit. In Jerusalem, when he gets there this time, he doesn't just go on a scouting report to the temple. He goes to the temple, and we see the righteous anger of the Lord manifest. And it says he went into the temple, and he saw all that was going on, and he went to the the tables of the money changers where they were buying and selling little animals for sacrifice, etc., and he tips the tables over. And he declares... That my house, this temple, is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. You can imagine how that went over with the religious people. And during this time, he's having different interactions with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Actually, he has about seven different conversations or discourses with religious leaders during this particular time. And none of them went very well, as you are probably all aware. And he actually did some teaching at the temple. And we'll be looking at the temple and the temple complex in just a little little while because I think it's important we get a context so we can understand the disciples' view of what they saw versus Jesus' prophetic view of what they saw. And after he did that, they went back to Bethany, and the next morning they are coming back into Jerusalem again. And this time his disciples noticed something. They see that fig tree. 
And the scripture says the fig tree is withered up from its roots. It's dead. No life. It's through. And the last thing that we see before we get to chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark is a a brief few verses about an event that I think a lot of us are probably familiar with. Jesus has been dialoguing with these Pharisees. It's been going back and forth. You know, they're constantly trying to trip him up, make him look bad, make him contradict himself, speak blasphemy, whatever. They're always looking for an excuse. And as he's standing there with, with these Pharisees and some of his disciples, he sees a widow coming to give her offering. And she puts her coin in the offering. And, of course, these prideful, haughty religious leaders are looking at this totally different than the way Jesus looked at it. And Jesus looks, uses this picture to express a, make a point to these religious leaders. He says, you have such little faith. She has great faith. She gave all that she had. And that brings us to chapter 13 where Jesus is now getting ready to leave Jerusalem again. So the scene, that's kind of the context. The scene I want us to look at is how Jesus, how do I want to word this? I don't want to assume anything about reading the mind of Jesus, but I think some significant things had to be going through his mind. Jesus is now leaving the temple. He's leaving the very center of the Jewish faith, of Jewish life. And he's never going to return to that temple. He knows that the Father is going to do something totally different. He's going to create and build a new house, provide for a new temple, to house his presence. It's called us. It's called his church. He knew that this temple that he is leaving, and when we get to verse 1 we're going to, and 2, we'll see his reaction to the disciples' comment. But he knew this thing, in my words, the whole thing has to be blown up. The new thing is coming. There can't be a mixture. Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, it says, you know, you you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. The new wine needs to go in a new wineskin. Jesus is about to usher in the new covenant. And the old covenant has to be removed. That the, the sacrificial system that was in place. So Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. They're walking out of the temple complex. They're walking through and out the city gates. And they're walking up the Mount of Olives. And about part way up, they, they stop to rest in all likelihood. It's a, a, a tough, tough walk, big hill. And they stop and rest. And this is where they're sitting. And, and as they're resting, we need to remember, Jesus is literally like two days from being arrested, going through this phony trial, and then being crucified. And what takes place is the longest teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Olivet Discourse in theological circles because they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. 
And it looks like when you read it at first glance, what he's teaching about is the end times and reference to this temple that they're looking at that's going to be destroyed. As I said earlier, I I want us to focus on what I think Jesus was really trying to express clearly to his disciples. And I think it's a message that is clearly important for us, even in our day and age, as his disciples. I believe what he's really saying is, you know, the timeline of the Ensign events isn't near as important as your faithfulness as my disciples to me and my word. The title of the message is to, to be alert and stay firm. I believe that was Jesus' message to his disciples, even in the Olivet Discourse. So let's look at, at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. I'm going to just read verses 1 and 2. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, Behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. When you're sitting partway up the Mount of Olives, you would have had this amazing view down on the whole temple complex. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus is leaving the center of the Jewish faith and Jewish life. And he is rejecting the temple and the sacrificial system that it represents. He sees not this beautiful building necessarily. He sees all of the corrupt practices and the very, very corrupt leadership represented by that temple. He he rejected it because a continuation of that sacrificial worship would have diminished and destroyed his sacrifice on the cross as our Savior, his blood being shed. And I believe he rejected it because he knew what the Father was doing, at least in part. He knew that the Father was creating something better and something way more beautiful than that temple, as beautiful as it was. And the disciples, when they we're sitting there looking at it. I, you know, I think these disciples, bless their heart, and we can sometimes get critical of them thinking things like, how could they not get this? How could they not understand? But if we put our, ourselves in their, their place, I think we could understand. We'd have probably missed a whole lot too because we had such a preconceived idea of what the Messiah was going to look like and what he was going to do. Shoot, they probably thought the Messiah, when he came, was going to rule at that temple. And Jesus said to them, you know, look at that building. You're impressed. There's not going to remain a single stone that's not been been turned and destroyed. They were amazed by the beauty and the majesty of it. So we're going to look at what the disciples view. If you want to put up the picture of the, the temple complex, if you hadn't already done it. It's just a drawing based from historical writings, based from the description of what the temple was supposed to look like. Pretty accurate. This particular slide that I, I chose was, is actually a miniature one that a man spent nearly 40 years building. But there's things I want to tell you about this temple to get an idea where the disciples are coming from and what Jesus was really saying, how significant it was. This complex was built by Herod the Great. You may remember a few weeks back we talked about Herod. He is an evil man. 
He was a horrible man. He reigned for years. He was vicious, vile, bloodthirsty murderer. Yet, he was an amazing builder. He built many things back in that time frame, including the temple complex. Not because he had a love for God or a fear of God whatsoever. He was building a monument to himself. It took nearly 50 years to rebuild this temple. Matter of fact, it wasn't even finished before Herod died. And listen to some of the, the statistics about this temple. It covered approximately the temple complex, the far outer wall. Everything within it covered about 35 acres. Now, for some of us who didn't grow up on the farm, go, what the heck's an acre? Most of us can imagine a football field. It would be like 12 football fields that laid side by side and end to end. It was big. It was really big. It's the, the most of the walls stood approximately 66 stories high. Approximately 60 to 70 feet high. Remember the tools that they did not have back then. There was one wall that was 15 stories high. All built out of stone. The columns, some of the columns that you can see along the sides, they were so big around that the historians say it would take three men with their arms outstretched holding hands to reach around the columns. And the rocks, some of the foundational stones, and they have architecturally uncovered some of these, so this isn't just hypothesis. Some of the stones were 60 feet long. Now think about it. This room isn't 60 feet across. So some of those stones were bigger, longer than this room. 24 feet wide. We have a 20-foot ceiling. 12 feet deep. Can you imagine? 60 by 24 by 12. How did they get them there? How did they do it? And most of the stones are marble. They were made of white and pink marble. Brass gates, brass hinges on the gates. A brass dome that shined, and especially it shined because it was then covered with gold. Gold was layered over almost everything. You could find gold everywhere. This is what they were looking at. Josephus and other historians, ancient historians say it looked like a mountain of granite, of, of marble. Topped off with gold. So you can see when the disciples are leaving the temple and they're going past these, they, wow, look at those stones. Look at these buildings. And now they've walked up partway up Mount of Olives and they're sitting there with Jesus and they're going to ask him because of Jesus' response was, see those buildings? Almost like offhandedly, see those buildings? Not a single stone is going to remain. And they're looking down on this complex with the sun shining on it, the gold reflecting. Historians write that the marble was so white when the sun was on it, you could hardly look at the marble. It hurt your eyes. And this is what they're looking at. And then they say, wow, look at this. It would be easy to say that the disciples 
maybe should have known better. Maybe they were a little bit short-sighted in, in, in being so impressed by the external. Got to remember, this is all for show. This whole thing was built for show. It was all built by Herod as a monument to how wonderful I am. And as the leader of the Jews, it was like him throwing him a bone. He was vicious and vile. He murdered his children, his, his sons and his wives. He was an evil man, but to rule his people, he said, I'm going to build him a temple. And this is what they were looking at when they looked at this temple. It was built for his own glory, a monument to himself. Know what it's called today? It's not God's temple. It's so appropriate. It's called Herod's temple. It was built for his glory. You would maybe think that after all that the disciples had seen and heard, being with Jesus, being around these religious leaders, that they wouldn't have been so awestruck by the external things. That they would almost be leaving the temple heavy-hearted, sad in their spirit of all the things that they've heard and seen being with Jesus. But I think we might be being too hard on them. How would we be? How are we? How are we when we look at things? Are we impressed by the external? I'm going to go to that church. Look at how big that church is. Boy, they have a huge congregation. I'm going to go to that church. I mean, that's the church everybody in town's talking about. It's such a popular church. We should go there. Man, do you know how many different ministries they have out of that church? What a church. Do you realize how relevant they appear to today's culture? Wow, what a church. It's easy for us to get enamored with externals. Just like the disciples were. Now, all of those things can be good things. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not what God is looking at when he's evaluating his church or his disciples. What he's looking at, are they faithful? Are they faithful to me? Are they faithful to Jesus? Are they faithful to his word? That's what he's concerned about. I believe God can be way more pleased than a tiny, with a tiny little life group than some big mega church if the hearts aren't right in the one and they're faithful in the other. God's view of the temple is a little different. As we read, God looked at the temple and says, you know what, not a single stone is going to remain unturned. When he looked at the temple, he saw a pile of bricks Actually, probably knew how it was going to be destroyed. So he not only saw a pile of bricks, he saw it smoldering as after it burned. He saw a temple full of beauty, but absolutely empty of truth. He's seeing a completely different picture prophetically of what that temple really is. He's seeing a temple that's covered in gold, but what it's doing is concealing all the corruption that had crept into his people. He saw a temple that was busy with activity every single day. But no real worship. 
Jesus' point of view was totally different. Our life can be like that temple. We need to ask sometimes ourselves questions like, is our life like that temple? Do we look good on the outside, but empty of love and worship for God and others on the inside? We can be that way. Do we have the appearance of godliness, or as the scripture says, denying its power? Jesus is not impressed with anybody's religion. What he's impressed with is his faithfulness, our faithfulness to him, our trust in him, our love for him. That's what he's impressed with. He wants to tear down religion. What he wants is our trust and obedience. He wants our hearts. It's about discipleship. And I'm going to stop here real quick, but I want to jump down to verse 5 quickly. And then we'll back up probably next week. They ask him the question with two parts. He tells them the temple's going to be destroyed. So they said, well, really, when's this going to happen? And what are the signs of the end? And, you know, Jesus had this uncanny knack. When people would ask him a question, it was like, He just ignored it. And he told them what he knew they needed to hear. He might circle back to it. But here's a great example. They ask him a question. And look at verse 5, what he says. See to it that no one misleads you. He was concerned about their focus. He was concerned about them remaining faithful disciples. He's basically saying, you know, this timeline thing, yeah, it's interesting. All that's going to happen and going on in the world is really interesting. But what about right now? What about the present? Are we faithful right now? Are we trusting him right now? Are we following him right now? Are we demonstrating his love to others right now? Boy, church, we can get so distracted. I mean, what he talks about is really distracting things. Famines and wars and earthquakes and you name it. It's a big deal. But he says that's not near as important. It's not near as important. Get your eyes off of those things. We can get into our world and our culture right now, and boy, are there, there are a ton of things, as we shared a week ago, that can distract us. How many times have you thought or you said, because I know I've said it, boy, the way things look, the end's coming quick. Well, the, 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 the right aunt, Jesus would probably look at us and go, maybe. I don't know. You didn't know. Nobody knows. If you think this is bad... If I read the scripture right, it says when the end gets close, it's going to be worse than anything that's ever happened, ever existed, ever before in the history of planet Earth. Now that's a big statement when you think of a worldwide flood that kills everybody but a family. It's a pretty big deal when you think of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah 
when they got toasted. His reminder to his disciples then, right out of his first thing, don't be misled. I think it's appropriate for us every day as his disciples. Don't be misled. Don't be distracted. Don't ignore things around you. He says what? Be alert. Be alert. But stand firm. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you and praise you that you are the rock that we can stand upon and know that we are on a firm foundation. God, that we can stand on your word, on your truth, on your promises. God, that we can, we can trust you. Lord, and this is what you want. Lord, so I pray that you would help us by your spirit to discern the things, the signs of the times. Yes, that we would be alert, that we wouldn't ignore what's going on around us, but we would not be distracted and lose our focus, that we would keep our eyes on you, that we would continue to try to be better disciples as your Holy Spirit works in our lives, and that we would help others to be disciples, that we would be about your work. We can't do it in our own strength. So, Lord, we just submit ourselves as your children, but also as your servants. Guide and direct us and give us grace to respond, especially in the times that we are living in, when the world is looking in all the wrong places for the hope and the joy and the peace and the love and acceptance that can only be found in you. So I pray, Lord, you would continue to allow us to be your servants. Use us. Bring us to those divine appointments where we can share the love of Christ, the hope that's in us. Pray that as we go our separate ways, you watch over us. Keep us safe. Draw us close. Lord, that everything we do would bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.